Good evening, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Tectonic. My name is Mark Hurst, and I will be your host for the next hour here on WFMU, Freeform Station of the Nation, live from Jersey City in downtown Jersey City, like I said, in the great state of New Jersey. Happy Memorial Day. If you're here in the United States, if you are outside the U.S., you may have heard uh, from other DJs today uh, that uh, today, May 29, 2023, we're celebrating Memorial Day here in the U.S. and we're uh, honoring honoring those who went before us and served in the U.S. military in various armed conflicts around the world. And um, I didn't plan it this way, but as it turns out, the subject of this evening's interview was a U.S. Navy veteran of World War II. But here I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit. I want to tell you, uh, I want to give you a little more context before we dive into this interview. This is a really uh, interesting conversation. We're going to be having this evening with Ted Hotelling, who is archivist at the Stevens Institute of Technology Library, uh, just across the way from Jersey City in Hoboken. Uh, and overlooking Manhattan, that overlook from Castle Point, uh, you will hear, come uh, comes up in the interview uh, with Ted. I was um, put in touch with Ted by DJ Erwin Chusid, so thanks to Erwin for uh, giving me this idea for this conversation. Ted has done research there at the uh, at the uh, Stevens Library on. A, a, an inventor and scientist, and as, as I said, uh, a, a Navy veteran and, and, a, and a man with a, with a really interesting career, 20th century career. His name is Harold Burris Meyer. And you can see links to uh, Burris Meyer on the playlist if you go to WFMU.org and click Playlist and Comments. Or if you're listening in the future, you can go to tectonic.fm, T E C H tonic.fm and again may 29 2023 is our is our show date and you can uh, find the playlist there with links to uh links to ted and information from stevens uh institute of technology about harold burris meyer so we're going to be speaking with ted about harold burris meyer this evening and and uh it's a it's a little bit of a different kind of interview from what i usually do because uh we're talking about a historical figure and maybe if you like these listener listeners if if you like these uh sorts of interviews maybe i'll do more of them in the future where we're covering some historical figure from the world of technology uh in a in an interview on the show Burris Meyer, as I said, uh, had a had a varied and interesting career in sound. Uh, he worked in sound from the 1930s on, and as you'll hear in the interview, there were three main phases of of Burris Meyer's career. The first phase was in the theater, in which he's using, he's inventing and developing uh, sound technology to enhance the experience in the theater in various ways. And then he moves on to the world of work, the world of business, using sound in a slightly less artistic way. I don't want to give it away just yet. And he works with a corporation that you've heard of uh, to advance, if you can call it that, the use of audio technology in the world of of work and business and uh, factory management as it was mid-20th century and then the third and final phase of Burris Meyer's career comes in the military after World War II starts, and he uses sound technologies for some very, very different uses. And uh, I'm going to leave it at that because Ted tells the story very well. I had a lot of fun speaking with him. And uh, why don't we go ahead and listen to the interview now. Again, if you want to join the, in the live listener chat, go to WFMU.org and click Playlists and Comments. And... Uh, Let's listen to Ted talk to us about Harold Burris Meyer here on Tectonic on WFMU. (music) 
Ted Hotelling. Welcome to Tectonic. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you on the show, Ted. You're an archivist and digital projects librarian at Stevens Institute of Technology there in Hoboken, New Jersey, not far from the WFMU studios in Jersey City. I am really excited to talk to you about a 20th century professor at Stevens Institute of Technology called Harold Burris Meyer. I had not heard much about Burris Meyer before DJ Erwin Chusett here at WFMU told me about it. Burris Meyer's archives are there at the library where he worked. Let's talk about Harold Burris Meyer. He was a scientist and, as I said, a professor at Stevens, and he had a, a long and really interesting career in sound research. How do you, at cocktail parties, Ted, when you're talking about Harold Burris Meyer, <laughs> how do you give the brief introduction? Well, he, he's the perfect topic for a cocktail party conversation because he's this really fascinating and relatively unknown figure in the 20th century who his whole research, his whole career was kind of centered around the use of sound as a tool for emotional and physiological control. So he occupies like a lot of different spaces throughout his career. Uh, and he played a, a critical role in all these different emerging fields like sound design for theater, music for industry, as well as like applied psychoacoustics for warfare during World War II. A lot of this research happened right here at Stevens. He was hired in 1929 as professor of dramatic arts, and that's really where a, a lot of his research begins. Okay, so Burris Meyer is born in 1902. In 29, you said he starts working as professor at Stevens in dramatic arts, and right away, he's interested in how to employ new technology to improve and enhance the auditory experience of theater. He believed that there was more that audio technology could do. What did he say about that, Ted? Yeah, his, uh, his whole career can kind of like be broken down into like three distinct research phases. So like initially, his work in the 20s and 30s is about studying sound and light as tools for creative expression, primarily for the theater. So he does like consulting work for the Metropolitan Opera, various Broadway productions, uh, and even like collaborates with students here at Stevens and the Dramatic Society, like the kind of the student organization here. So it starts off doing this type of research for theatrical productions. And then it kind of moves into research in industrial settings, like using sound and music to improve uh, worker productivity. And then finally, the third phase is his involvement in the weaponization of sound as like a weapon of war during World War II with his work for the National Defense Research Committee. Let's talk a little bit about his stage work, just to give an example for the listeners because there were a lot of advancements in the 20th century in terms of audio technology, and you can imagine many things that one could do with new technology, with stage productions. But Burris Meyer was taking a lot further than simply better sound quality or better amplification. He really, as, as you said, he really wanted to affect the audience in different ways, not simply in the clarity of the audio, but in the uh, manipulating of emotions mm -hmm. of the audience. And so one example is there was a production of Macbeth. He worked with vocoder, which had been invented at Bell Telephone Labs, BTL, and used the vocoder to make new audio for the witches' voices. That must have been, I mean, this was back in the 1930s, I guess. That must have been wild oh, yeah. to, to be using a vocoder in the 1930s to make the witches sound especially menacing and, and freaky. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I, I guess like the best summary of what he was trying to do is a quote that he gave in 1940, where he said, with sound, you can compel the audience to laugh, to weep. You can knock them off their seats. You can lay them in the aisles and you can make them believe what you will. That final part is the kind of nefarious part of his career. You know, initially, as I said, like it starts off as tools for creative expression in the theater. And so, like, as you mentioned, like there was a couple of productions that he did here at Stevens. Like one of them was a production of Macbeth. Um, but there was another one in 1934, which was kind of like the big 
early demonstration of a lot of these techniques that he was developing. And that was called the Stevens Sound Show. And that was produced in May of 1934. And the Sound Show, this, there were two of them. Uh, the first one in 34 and then another one in 1941. But the first Sound Show kind of served as like a demonstration for all these different theories that he had percolated about the use of controlled sound. So like, what do I mean by controlled sound? It's electronically manipulating acoustic or pre-recorded sound through all sorts of different variables, you know, like intensity, like pitch, timbre, and its movement and location throughout the space of the theater. And so, you know, a lot of these techniques were applied to Stevens Productions and the Dramatic Society, but also a lot of institutions across the river, like the Metropolitan Opera and Carnegie Hall and, you know, various productions that were done on Broadway. But the Stevens Sound Show in 1934 kind of like unveiled this new device called the Stevens Sound Control System, which, you know, you can kind of think of as like a prototype surround sound system. And again, like this is 1934. So like PAs and electronic loudspeakers, you know, have been around since like the turn of the 20th century. Uh, but they weren't really common in theatrical productions at the time. Like, you know, most shows still relied on the architecture of the theater uh, to amplify the sound of the performers. So that the idea that like electronic sound could be used as like this distinct and unique medium for expression, like it was still pretty radical. I mean, the, you know, the French and the Germans, like their experiments with like music concrete and magnetic tape collages, you know, were still like a ways away. So this show in 1934 is like a, a demonstration of what the theater of the future would sound like. He wrote in the introduction in the show's program. The intention was to show controlled sound as, quote, dramatically useful in the creative arts as lighting, sets, costumes, and other traditional visual elements of, of theater production. Well, I'm just struck that this was happening in the 1930s. I mean, things that we take for granted now, if you go to an IMAX movie or if you see a, a musical on Broadway, there's all sorts of sound manipulations to amplify the, the voices and the sound effects, if, if it's a movie, and even to give the directionality of where things mm -hmm. are coming from, especially in an IMAX movie, you would get that. All of that started with Harold Burris Meyer, right? No one else was, was doing that until he came out with the first version of these effects back in the 1930s. Right, yeah. I mean, there were some examples, like Magnavox, like it created like a electric loudspeaker. And, you know, there's all these other little pocket examples but, you know, they're just commercial demonstrations, like they didn't really take it farther than, you know, here's electric playback of acoustic sound, you know, reading through Burris Myers's like correspondence and his notes, like, he thinks of it as something completely different. Like, I'm not just trying to play back sound to an audience, like I'm trying to move their souls. I'm trying to <laughs> man manipulate their minds, you know, manipulating their bodies. So there's like a few examples from the 1934 sound show where he explicitly does try to control <laughs> the mind and the body of the audience. Let's talk a little bit about these manipulations because this foreshadows what he did for the rest of his career, as you say, in factories and then later on battlefields. This idea of not simply amplifying or clarifying audio, but manipulating the listeners in some way, their emotions or their thoughts or even their physical responses. And that started when he was doing this early stage work. I think he wrote that he was looking for predictable, involuntary emotional reactions. So predictable meaning he could control and he mm -hmm. could predict that the audience would have these reactions without being aware that they were being manipulated. One example I learned about, which was really interesting to me, is that he would, at the end of some of these shows, these theater shows he was working on, as the actors take their bow, he would use the sound system to play some applause noise. Right, right, right. In, in effect, to juice the audio. And as he began that, he was doing it as an experiment. He was noting how much applause sound he put in and how many extra curtain calls would be output as a result. And he found that at a certain level of input, he could get up to five curtain calls. Right, yeah. Some of his uh, conclusions are, are pretty interesting, yeah. Yeah, so it's just interesting that he's 
almost immediately he's looking not just at the artistic integrity of the production, but how much he's able to <laughs> control the audience, control the emotions and the actions of the audience. Another part of this, as I said, is that he wanted to operate in a way that the audience was unaware that, that it was happening. And so there's this production of a play called Emperor Jones. Right, right. In which he installed this subsonic drum under the seating of the theater. What what was happening with this subsonic drum? And what does subsonic mean in this case? Subsonic is like a below the average range of human hearing. So there's like ultra high frequencies, very high frequencies, and, you know, very low frequencies. Um, almost like, you know, the sound of the uh, the earth turning and things like that. So the subsonic drum that he developed for the show, and this is in the second sound show in 1940. And interestingly enough, the scene that he did from the Emperor Jones featured a performance by Paul Robeson, the, you know, the noted civil rights activist and uh, performer. So Paul Robeson is, you know, before the, the curtain opens, the subsonic drum was installed like underneath the floor of the theater. And all it really was, was like a giant speaker system that just emitted these very subtle, low frequency sounds that would gradually grow louder and louder before the curtain opened and, you know, the show would begin. So the audience, without even realizing it, would feel like this sense of like unease or like hmm, something, you know, something doesn't feel quite right because, you know, the sound of these subsonics uh, drumming is like slowly being turned behind the stage by, you know, Burris Meyer manipulating a switch <laughs> or something like that. So it starts off barely audible. And then, you know, a couple of minutes go by and it's just resonating the entire theater. Like the, the seats are shaking, like the people are getting, you know, headaches or panic attacks or something like that. But it's just like <laughs> one, one, of the, one of many examples of him using theater early on as like an incubator for this idea that, you know, controlled sound can be used to directly affect the emotional state or even the physiological state of the listener and of the audience. It's so interesting that here in the 2020s, we always hear about these Silicon Valley guys trying to figure out how to use their new tools, whether it's social media or AI or whatever. It, it always comes back to how can we manipulate people whether it's um, you know consumers to buy more junk or to click more articles or <laughs> citizens right. to vote for whoever we want to manipulate people to vote for, this is apparently not a new idea. I mean, here, Burris Meyer in the 1930s, using speakers under the floor of a theater had an ultimate goal of manipulation of the audience. And that continued throughout the rest of his career, didn't it? Yeah, and, and he's very explicit about that. I mean, he, you know, he's explicitly saying that he wants to, quote, induce nervous tension within the audience for that one show, for the first sound show, as well as like in the second sound show. So like what you were saying with, you know, like the attempt to manipulate people through sound or through language and all these other things. I mean, going back to 1934, when he did that first sound show, a journalist in the New York Herald Tribune picked up on some of like the nefarious aspects of the, like this type of research. In 1934, he wrote that the audience of the future will have its emotions directed by sounds it cannot hear, rays it cannot see, waves of clammy air and electric forces which can make its hair stand on end. And, you know, he goes on to offer like this pretty prescient and disturbing vision of like what this technology could lead to. He said like, it may be that they cause effects on the body which stimulate or depress feeling. So if a controlled soundless sound attacks the theater audience, it might produce emotional effects without anyone in the listening group being any the wiser. So that you know <laughs> gets into some kind of wild stuff. And there is like another journalist in like the Cincinnati Times Star who he goes to see the first sound show in 1934. And, you know, he quips like, what a labor saving device that would have been for Adolf Hitler. Yeah. You know, after Burris Meyer makes the claim that he could invent a sound machine that could induce hysteria in an audience in less than 30 seconds. <laughs> I like how specific that is. We can get to hysteria in less than 30 seconds, as though he has measured it at 29 and a half seconds. 
uh, yeah, causing and, hysteria in a crowd with his his magic sound machine. <laughs> Absolutely. And to be fair, I mean, some of this stuff, you know, you can chalk up to, you know, pseudoscience, like especially the type of research that he was doing on behalf of the Muzak Corporation, where he's like ginning up research reports, you know, basically just to sell a product. Some of these claims can be taken with a grain of salt. And we're back. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Tectonic on WFMU. My name is Mark Hurst. I'm your host. We are halfway through my interview with Ted Hotelling, archivist and digital projects librarian at Stevens Institute of Technology in Hoboken in the great state of New Jersey. We're talking about 20th century scientist and inventor and entrepreneur Harold Burris Meyer, who had a somewhat strange and and fascinating career spanning decades in sound design in a number of different contexts. We have heard just just now from Ted about Burris Meyer's work in the theater, working with Broadway plays, Metropolitan Opera, and student productions at Stevens in which he was doing some very radical things for the time, for the, for the 1930s, that led to later advancements like surround sound. Let's go ahead and listen to the second half of this interview with Ted, Ted Hotelling here on Tectonic on WFMU. You know, you bring up Muzak. Let's let's talk about his second phase of his career. So after working on theater productions, he gets a call from George Owen Square, the founder of Muzak. Reading up on this, I was not aware that Muzak apparently did not start as a company piping in extruded musical product <laughs> into elevators and, and dentist offices and malls. It was originally a company that was playing actual music on factory floors and in other uh, workplaces. Mm-hmm. And the idea was to increase worker productivity while boosting their morale and improving their general outlook while they're doing this, these repetitive tasks. So with the music team, Burris Meyer, as you say, he runs this research where they, they have different factories, I guess, signed up for their experiments. Right. And they're piping in different kinds of music and somehow measuring the output and people's productivity and collating that with the demographics of the factory workers, their age and, and nationality and so on. What were some of the conclusions that they drew from this sort of research? A lot of these research reports that were done by Barris Meyer were done, you know, right here at Stevens. And one of the big things that they produce is this thing called the stimulus progression system, which kind of defines like what the Muzak brand is for, for decades to come. I'm not an authority on, on Muzak in any way. Like if people want to learn more about history of Muzak, uh, there's a really great book called uh, Elevator Music, A Surreal History of Muzak, Easy Listening, and Other Mood Song that was written by Joseph Lanza back in 1994. But the stimulus progression system is essentially like a method for counteracting worker fatigue and boredom. So a lot of the studies that were done by Burris Meyer and his colleague Richard Cardinell at Stevens led to the creation of the system, and they're preserved here in the archives. And we have hundreds of these different research reports, and you know all of them claim to prove, you know, using hard data that sound and music uh, could be used to improve mood, boost morale, decrease fatigue, and increase productivity through the use of like controlled sound. So, you know, for example, like we have one that shows a chart that lists the test subjects' age, their nationality, their gender, you know, all the things that you mentioned, like the type of work that they do. And then all these other variables were assessed against like a series of tests, you know, where they play them different types of music. And it was all to see like if it had any beneficial effect on the worker's performance. So, you know, we're getting a little further away from, you know, controlled sound as like this tool for artistic expression and creativity. And it's starting to get more into, you know, just being about the bottom line. It's about increasing profits for companies, really. You said that at the library at Stevens, you have 
dozens of reports with lots of these inflated claims. Do you think that these were accurate? Were the workers actually becoming more productive as they listened to these music selections? You know, it's <laughs> it's funny. It's like it's kind of hard to say, right? Because you know, at the end of the day, uh, these research reports were done in the service of marketing a product. So, you know, like I said, some of the results could be ginned up or, you know, they can be manipulated or, you know, they can be tweaked to show that, yes, Muzak is the best product that you can use to increase productivity in your workforce. So how scientific they are, uh, you know, it's, it's really hard to say. Like one report that he wrote in 1936, like makes the claim that controlled music in factories and in offices could cut down early departures by as much as 66%. Um, so, <laughs> sure. I mean, ha- not, not everybody, you know, responds to music in the same way. Not, every, not everyone likes the same type of music. And to kind of like create this prescriptive form of dosing it, essentially, to a factory workforce, uh, it's a little problematic. But, you know, he makes the claim that like, oh, we interviewed people from different nationalities. Some prefer, you know, polka music. Others like prefer light instrumental music. You know, he's condensing all this information and making it into this thing where he could be like, well, the ideal dose is 10 to 15 minutes of instrumental music uh, administered at 10 o'clock in the morning until noon, uh, every 30 minutes. And then in the afternoon, we'll revert to a more peppy, upbeat, vocal music that, you know, can offset the worker fatigue that sets in like after lunch. So, I mean, <laughs> it's, just, it's, it's like uh, prescribing someone a regimen to live their life or to, you know, work as an employee to deliver a product. I remember growing up in the 1980s and you'd go into these big department stores at the mall or wherever, and that's where I encountered music. And it was, it was like nails on a chalkboard. The music was so... <laughs> offensively bad to my you, you, you don't like uh you don't like music it was just dun dun, dun it's like oh get me out of here <laughs> but well that that lanza book really gets gets into how like um you know the 4-4 rhythm you know was desired by employers not only for their workforce to be more productive but also for customers who you know when you give a steady rhythm it's a morale booster and it's been proven that people spend more when they're in a better mood and when there's like a kind of a syncopated rhythm to their daily activities, like same, you know, ideas used in casinos and things like that. Right. You know, so it's like, how can you use audio? How can you manipulate space to create outcomes? And sometimes it's a artistic outcome and sometimes it's a crassly commercial outcome. Okay, let's go to the third phase of Burris Meyer's career when he was explicitly not working for benign effects on the listeners. This is in warfare. In World War II, he got involved with the Navy, actually eventually became a a commander in the U.S. Navy, and he was working on psychoacoustics for warfare. He came up with something called the BJ scale. Can you describe what that was, the BJ scale? Yeah, in 1942, Harold Burris Meyer gets the attention of the U.S. government. So he's commissioned as the lieutenant commander in the U.S. Navy, and he's sent to work for the physics section of the National Defense Research Committee to conduct top-secret research, quote, investigating the potential applications of sound control, psychoacoustics, and use of theatrical techniques for military purposes. So that's the transition and kind of like the culmination of his work and having it being uh, maybe exploited is not the word, but being employed for very different purposes than what he was doing in like the 1930s, but kind of being like a natural extension of the possibilities of like sound as a tool for control or, you know, from that sound is like a weapon of war even. Um, I'd I'd recommend reading Gossio Azunian's book, uh, Stereophonica, Sound in Space and Science, Technology and the Arts, just published a few years ago through MIT Press and uh, a book by Juliet Volker called Extremely Loud, Sound as a Weapon. So that really gets more into sound as a weapon of war. So about the BJ scale, yeah. <laughs> you know, he, he, he does a lot of 
really weird and really fascinating and like frankly like kind of disturbing research working for the NDRC here so like one of them is helping to establish a standard for what was called the BJ scale which was named after the beach jumpers like a special warfare unit of the navy who dealt in psychological warfare and covert deception operations during world war ii so the bj scale is like it's essentially a scale that like measures the unpleasantness of sounds and uh, the limits of human tolerance for for those sounds so like for example like they experimented with uh, the sounds of sirens crying babies ultrasonic sounds industrial noises etc and you know a lot of it is like pretty out there and you know Maybe some of these experiments were not up to snuff with current uh, ethical best practices, to say the least. But, you know, there's one experiment that he did. His team secretly administers high scale factor sounds via headphones on this like unwitting test subject. And after fewer than like 10 seconds of exposure to this sound, like beyond the limits of like human tolerance, the subject tears off his headset, he throws it in the corner, he puts on his hat, and then he just goes home. <laughs> so like there's another one where they projected high intensity BJ scale sounds from the highest point on the Stevens campus, which Stevens is in Hoboken, you know, right across the river from Manhattan. So they're broadcasting all of these sounds like from this, you know, antenna. And soon, you know, they're getting complaints from all over the surrounding areas. And it like includes part of Manhattan and it even like people as far as like Forest Hills and Queens. Uh, start hearing like, you know, there's like some high frequency pitch that is giving me a headache. I don't know what's like going on, but it was all them kind of testing out these ideas like, you know, to an unwitting population. So like I said, it's not very ethical, kind of nuts, but that's essentially what the BJ scale is. <laughs> I just, <laughs> I find it amusing that just across the river from Manhattan, there was an antenna broadcasting sounds into the New York area that some people found offensive and unlistenable. I mean, it's, it's basically the proto WFMU over there. Yeah. He, yeah. He's, uh, he's the forerunner to uh, WFMU for sure. <laughs> <laughs> the complaints coming in from listeners. This gives me a headache. Put something yeah. better on. It's, it's, it's kind of funny because like the, something similar happened with like the campus radio station here, WCPR. So like, you know, it's just, Stevens is a school of engineering students. So, yeah. Basically, WCPR was just a bunch of electrical engineering students, and they like rigged up this like professional grade antenna, like at the highest point of Castle Point here in Hoboken, and they just start broadcasting their signal, and it's like so powerful, like it's broadcasting at such a high wattage that like they're blotting out like WABC in Manhattan, <laughs> and they get like a cease and desist letter from the FCC because it's like you're. <laughs> You're, you're too you're, powerful. You're, you're too powerful. Like a tiny little student-run campus radio station is like destroying one of the most powerful signals in like the tri-state area. That's that's a great case study for the engineers there. I wanted to say something about the BJ of the BJ scale. BJ stands for Beach Jumpers. I came across an article uh, from 2019 in the Navy Times that was talking about these beach jumper missions. As you said, they were dedicated to uh, deception of the enemy in World War II. And I'll put this Navy Times article on the playlist, but the actor Douglas Fairbanks, of all people, had a major role in setting this up. So he had interest in theatrical missions. And they brought on Burris Meyer because he was good at using technology for manipulation. And so what they did was they outfitted basically a bunch of speedboats that had giant speakers, giant audio speakers affixed to them. And they would go back and forth in front of enemy encampments on the shore, like uh, in Italy or France, and they would play the sounds of an invading amphibious force. <laughs> right, right. Of ship horns and, and uh, guns going off, the, all the sorts of machinery, all the sorts of sounds you would hear just before an invasion. And the idea was the enemy would then bring their defenses to that part and would leave open the intended site of the real invasion. And they did that a few times, and it had, it had some, some good effects for the Allies. Oh, that, that, that's really fascinating, yeah. And there, there's a 
very strange lineage, you know, like a history of audio illusion almost being used in warfare. Like, I mean, there was like a similar example, like in the Vietnam War of Operation Wandering Soul, you know, which is an attempt to use psychological warfare using recorded sounds of ghosts to broadcast to North Vietnamese soldiers, you know, that their ancestors were rising from the dead and telling them to go home and things like that. So, you know, it's a pretty disturbing history, but, you know, Burris Meyer definitely played a role in that during World War II because a lot of his work, aside from the BJ skill, is also studying like how sound travels, like how it, how sound is modified, like when it passes through different types of terrain and like with these public address systems, like he came up with an apparatus that... Project Poly. Right. Yeah. Like a loudspeaker attached to airplane wings. So, you know, you could <laughs> broadcast propaganda and sound effects to demoralize the enemy like overhead and things like that. This was amazing to me. I read about this. 130 decibels being played at 10,000 feet. So almost two miles up. And it was audible on the ground. And they would play, as you said, propaganda, but they would interleave the propaganda with popular music. Again, mm -hmm. he, here's Burris Meyer instrumenting both the artistic with the music and the manipulative and technology, the best technology of the time in order to have some sort of impact. Do you know if Project Poly, I read that they claimed that they had caused some enemy combatants to give up without a fight. Do you know if that's true? Yeah, I, I don't know. I would probably defer to like a, a military historian or, you know, probably in Juliet Volker's book, Sound as a Weapon, because I think she explicitly writes about, you know, different examples of that being used in warfare, police riots, you know, and other similar situations. To what extent, Ted, do you think Burris Meyer's work still lives on today? I mean, obviously he set in motion some technological trends. We said earlier, surround sound stemmed in part from his work. Muzak is still around. The idea of using music to encourage people to buy or buy more at the restaurant or whatever, those, those basic sorts of ideas are around. But in terms of using audio in ways that people are not aware of in order to manipulate them, where has that gone? Is that still around? It's hard to come up with like specific examples of that, but I, I, I think like his legacy... I don't know if it can be directly tied to like the research that he was doing at Stevens and, you know, later for Florida State University. It, it's, it's hard to say if there's a direct lineage because, I mean, there's people who a few years later are doing similar things. They're the ones that sort of advance the mission or those types of experiments and refining them and developing them. And that's where much of the contemporary legacy comes from but it's 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 hard to say with Ferris Meyer and I think like you know even he was a little conflicted about his legacy because like we have writings of him in the archives in the 1950s like looking back on his career and trying to kind of sum it up and I think even he thinks it's he, he doesn't know you know he says that his experiments in like the 1930s he described as quote, effective tools in the service of the creative arts, but it did little to disturb the mythology of sound, which still credited the ultrasonic lethal ray, the whistle, which could drive people crazy, and the horn, which knocked down the walls of Jericho. So it's kind of fascinating. You know, I'm sure you can point to a number of contemporary examples, but whether or not they have a direct lineage, I, 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 I don't know. Before we close, I wanted to ask you a little bit about your work at the library at Stevens. You're, as I said, archivist and digital projects librarian. I just want to note for the listeners, you are speaking about Harold Burris Meyer, but you work on many, many other subjects there. What is your job like there? And what are some of the other people and projects that you're studying? So I, I work in the archives and special collections department at the library here. And, uh, you know, we have a lot of departmental records and oral histories, faculty papers, alumni collections, you know, all manner of photographs, audiovisual materials relating to the history of Stevens since its founding in 1870, uh, as well as other materials relating to the Stevens family and, you know, the history 
of science and technology uh, around Hoboken and in New York City. If people want to learn more about what you do or about the library there, where should they go? Sure. Yeah, we we have a lot of collections like in the physical archives that, you know, you can make an appointment to see in person. But, you know, we also have a lot of digitized collections online. So, you know, we have the complete run of our student newspapers. We're, we're currently digitizing our yearbooks going back to the 1880s. You know, we want to put more materials online so that people don't have to visit in person in order to see these materials. So if you want to learn more or if you want to get in touch to learn more about Harold Burris Meyer, you can just visit us at stevens.edu slash academics slash library. And uh, you'll see a link to the archives there that gives the contact information for me and um, the head of archives and special collections, my boss, uh, Leah Laskatov. And I'll put a link to the library as well on the playlist at WFMU.org. Really appreciate you spending time today talking to us about Harold Burris Meyer, Ted, even as you are working on so many other projects there. Ted Hotelling, thanks so much for being on Tectonic today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Tectonic on WFMU. My name is Mark Hurst. I'll be your host for the remaining 15 minutes of the show. And then I want you to stay tuned because the great Dave Mandel comes into Studio A and hosts his excellent show called It's Complicated. It's a prog rock show and you should listen to it. In fact, if you're listening in the future to an archive or a podcast version, you may get a few minutes of Dave Mandel's show at the tail end of this file, and I'd recommend that you go find the whole file of Dave's show at WFMU.org. I want to say thanks to Ted Hotelling, archivist at Stevens Institute of Technology nearby in Hoboken, New Jersey, for speaking with me about Harold Burris Meyer, a figure I had not known anything at all about until DJ Erwin Chusid pointed me in Burris Meyer's direction and in Ted's direction to have that conversation. So thank you to Erwin. And from the comments on the comment board this evening, it seems like a lot of other people have enjoyed learning about Harold Burris Meyer and uh, maybe even would like an occasional historical-themed interview of other historical figures in the, in the uh, tech business, in the tech field. And so with that encouragement, yes, I'll, I'll take a look at other opportunities in the future. So thanks for your feedback on that. But thanks again, thanks to Ted for, uh, for sharing your wisdom and your, your research results on Harold Burris Meyer. If you're interested in uh, following up on some of those pointers that he brought up, I've posted a bunch of material on the playlist. Again, WFMU.org or tectonic.fm, T-E-C-H, tonic.fm is where I'll put this. Uh, playlist link for May 29, 2023. We've got links to the library at Stevens, a link to a video lecture by Gassia Azunian, who wrote a book that Ted uh, referenced and uh, in the interview called Stereophonica, Sound and Space in Science, Technology, and the Arts. That's uh, published by MIT Press in 2021. So uh, there, there are other links as well. So you can go and you can go all the way down into this rabbit hole if you're interested. I try to put the, these links for further reading on the playlist, uh, both for listeners who are interested to go further, but also for myself. So in, in the future, when I go back to a show, I can see at a glance what some of the, uh, what some of the resources were that I was drawing on for that particular show or interview. So I hope you find those interesting. In the spirit of those old Charlie Brown, remember when Charlie Brown would come on screen at the end of the uh, after-school special? If, you're more, if you want to learn more about plants, go to your local library. So consider this the Charlie Brown reminder to learn more about how to manipulate people and enemies in warfare 
with psychoacoustics. <laughs> Harold Burris Meyer, a pioneer in all those things. There's also, I put that link to the uh, Navy Times article. Looks like it was originally in World War II magazine, and then the Navy Times uh, reprinted it. And the, the article is called The Operation Dragoon Drama of Douglas Fairbanks. So the article is really focused on that uh, Hollywood, very famous Hollywood actor, Douglas Fairbanks, who got involved with, uh, with combat missions in World War II, as a number of, of famous actors and directors did at that time, you know, seeing as we're, we're speaking today on, on Memorial Day 2023, it's, it's worth uh, taking, taking a moment to remember this. And there was this, um, th these beach jumper units, or so-called BJ units, and the article says there were nine uh, BJ units uh, organized by the U.S. Navy during World War II. They were commissioned in uh, Little Creek, which is uh, right next to uh, Norfolk Naval Shipyard in Virginia. And uh, Bur Harold Burris Meyer was instrumental in coming up with the technology that these BJ units would use. And so the, the article says, in a, in a pre-war staging, so this is, again, before World War II when, when Burris Meyer was working in uh, theater productions, in a pre-war staging of Shakespeare's Hamlet, Burris Meyer had used the, quote, BJ factor on a theatrical audience, synchronizing visual and audio effects to dramatize the movements of the play's ghost. And actually, in Agassiz Ozunian's uh, video lecture, I believe she talks about this, uh, in that the, the ghost would go from, let's say, stage right to stage left, and again, this was in, in the 1930s, and they used an array of directed audio that would follow the path of the ghost. So as the audience was watching the ghost, the ghost's uh, audio, I guess the, the ghost has some lines to speak, would track with where the ghost was on the stage, which must have been mind-blowing back in those days that, uh, that, that, that that was even possible. And it must have really seemed uh, realistic, you know, ghost-like. So anyway, the, the Navy Times article is bringing up Burris Meyer had done this before the war. And then it continues, for, uh, for his wartime work, Burris Meyer devised portable, self-contained gear consisting of sophisticated generator-powered amplifiers and multi-directional speakers. Again, there's the directed uh, audio again. Connected to recording and playback equipment, the units, codenamed heaters, broadcast pre-recorded noises simulating a seaborne invasion. Operating heaters from small boats offshore, beach jumper personnel aimed to convince enemy defenders that an attack was imminent. If the BJ factor worked, hoodwinked enemy troops would rush to the ghost invasion beach, leaving the actual invasion site vulnerable. So there's... There is how Burris Meyer's work on Hamlet actually translated into World War II uh, combat missions. And, um, and then in the middle, of course, we had Muzak, <laughs> which was a very different accomplishment. And I, 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 every time, Ted, you heard, every time Ted quoted one of these statistics, you know, 66% of the employees will stay longer or something like that. Uh, I just laughed because that's the same kind of false precision that we see today in marketing materials about these algorithms and these, these systems that are quietly manipulating employees to do better work. And I, I guess uh, they must have some effect because giant companies like Amazon continue to invest in, in these systems to, to track and surveil and manipulate their employees moment to moment. But I guess for, what was it, 1960s era music technology, it's just harder for me to believe that those things were effective playing a polka for exactly 15 minutes. Although someone on the comment board said, if you want to improve productivity, play Stashu's Dance With Me Stanley show and productivity will go up 10x. And maybe that's true. I would be more willing to believe that than that music for uh, 10 to 15 minutes would Im improve uh, productivity by exactly 66%. But what I know, uh, a couple of other pointers, real, I'm running out of time, uh, really quick, that were on the uh, playlist. One is that uh, Web Hamster Henry points out that Dave Soldier is going to be at Le, uh, at Le Poisson Rouge 
on Sunday, June 18. So it's coming up, and uh, Dave Soldier Orchestra is going to be playing, um, you may have heard of this, um, Komar and Melamid's very famous uh, duo of songs, the most wanted song and the most unwanted song. Have you heard about this? The, the Komar and Melamed ran these surveys uh, with I don't know how many how many data points they got hundreds or thousands of people would would send back these surveys to say what are the elements in music that they most wanted to hear, and what are the elements that they least wanted to hear. So I and I have a somewhere at home I think I still have my CD that is just those two songs, and they're going to be playing them live at Le Poisson Rouge. So go see that show Sunday June 18. I believe that is Father's Day. So. If, uh, if there are fathers out there who want to make a request to, to go see a show, that might be a fun one. I think tickets are not that expensive. So thanks to uh, Web Hamster Henry for bringing that up. And also, um, Joe Mulligan brought up uh, Havana, Havana Syndrome, which was another acoustic uh, manipulation, possibly, that was in the news a couple of years ago. There was, what was it, a... Um, was it uh, CIA or State Department or, or some sort of government office, uh, I think, on Guantan in Guantanamo Bay. Isn't that right? That, or was, no, I suppose it was in Havana, of course. Duh. So it was in Havana, and there, there were U.S. government personnel who were coming down with these bizarre symptoms of headaches and dizziness and, uh, in, you know, brain fog, and they were wondering... Uh, what was causing it, and they said they would hear these these strange knockings in the wall. And if you if you've heard about this Havana syndrome, I, you know that the the case was never fully resolved. Uh, there are two camps. One says it was foreign interference, and another says there was nothing going on at all. It was all in their heads. I I don't I haven't read all the research, so I don't know. But I just wanted to point out that that links to a recent tectonic in which I spoke with Nita Farahani about her book, The Battle for Your Brain. If you uh, get a copy of The Battle for Your Brain, she's got a whole case study on Havana Syndrome there. So there's your link from Farahani to uh, uh, Harold Burris Meyer this, this week's show. That's about all the time I have for this evening. I do want to let you know that I'm going to be out next week, and I'm very excited that station manager Ken Friedman is going to be guest hosting once again. I think he's going to have a great interview for you, so uh, you will not want to miss that show next week. Station manager Ken Friedman, guest hosting Tectonic, and I plan to be back in two weeks. So I hope you have a great rest of your Memorial Day and, uh, and, and, a, and a great time next week in my absence, and I look forward to seeing you then. And I want you to stay tuned again for the great Dave Mandel, who's about to come in and knock your socks off with It's Complicated, his prog rock show. Now, as for my outro, um, I thought what would be appropriate to play at the end of this interview with Ted Hotelling about Harold Burris Meyer, and I thought, you know, it, there's only one thing I can play, and that's Muzak. And I found on the Internet Archive, the subject of another uh, past show with Internet Archive founder Brewster Kale. You can go back in the archives and listen to that one. I found on archive.org this file from a Kmart in 1973 I guess headquarters sent out this reel-to-reel tape out to all the stores saying, play this loop in your stores. And it's just the most uh, beautiful um, Kmart. It's not beautiful. Um, Kmart Muzak. I don't know if it's actually Muzak branded. I'm just using that as the general term. But it's the kind of music that I remember hearing when I would go to the mall in the early 80s and some of these department stores. So I hope you very much appreciate and enjoy that. You have been listening to the greatest radio station in the world, WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope in New York City and Rockland County at 91.9 FM and online at WFMU.org. And for the next two weeks, friends, you have some homework, as you always do. I want you to avoid Apple, abandon Amazon, forget Facebook, and whatever you do, get off Google. Have a great rest of Memorial Day, and I'll see you in two weeks. Thanks, everybody.
And nothing. Hold on. We need that theme song. Deluxe Stephen Wilson remix of 5% for Nothing by Yes. I hate computers so much. <laughs> we almost didn't have a theme, intro theme this week because of a computer a near foul up on the computer. Next week, I'm going to have the members of Yes come in and personally play that track for you so I don't have to worry about browsers and networks. Good evening. Welcome to another thrilling episode of It's Complicated. My name is Dave Mandel. I'm the host. Every he I'm here every Monday evening between the hours of 7 and 8 p.m. Lovely to be here, as always. We're going to begin tonight's show with a couple of French things. Actually, a French, French thing and a Swiss-French thing. We're going to start with something from a guy named uh, Francois Bréant, who... Um, was uh, was an artist, uh, did did some cover art in addition to being a musician, but he was a musician and he played with Albert Marcoeur, who uh, you may know if you're familiar with this show, a genius French uh, jazz rock musician, and various others. We're going to hear a track from an album he recorded in 1978, Francois Briant, and following that we're going to hear something from a Swiss group named Debile Montol. Their name is a hilarious French pun, which I'll tell you more about when we come back, but here are those two pieces. <laughs> <laughs> 